Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Ron Paul said, one thing is clear, the founding fathers never intended a nation where citizens would pay nearly half of everything they earn to the government. Now, last December marked 30 years since I received my first securities license back in 1992. And over those years, I've had exposure to a lot of different investment options and and different allocation models for clients. And I can tell you one thing that's been pretty consistent since the beginning is I've never really been drawn to taxable bonds as an investment option. Ibbotson, Morningstar reports, historical performance versus inflation, they aren't never really been consistently a good hedge against inflation. And to me, the arrangement really has never made sense, particularly with treasury bonds. I mean, you give the government money, you have no idea what it's going to be used for, and then you're relying on the full faith and credit of that same government to pay your money back. It's just too open-ended in my mind. But there is a aspect or a sector of the bond market that has made sense to me over the years for certain clients in certain situations, and that is the municipal bond market. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with municipal bonds, these are bonds that are typically issued by the state or the local level, the local community to improve the world around us, whether that would be building new roads, building hospitals, improving school campuses, whatever it might be. But the benefit is that you know exactly what the money's going to be used for. And that's, to me, really important. And oftentimes, you also know how the money's going to get paid back. There are what are called general obligation bonds, which are bonds that are guaranteed by the taxing authority of the issuer. And then there's also revenue bonds is another example where if, say, a toll road is built, the toll that people pay to use that road, that money is used as the revenue from the toll road is used to pay the bond debt back. So to me, that makes sense. There's another benefit, which is that oftentimes the interest from these bonds is exempt from federal income tax and in certain circumstances, also state income tax, depending upon where you live and where the bond is issued. But that to me makes a lot of sense. And just as a quick history lesson, municipal bonds have a place in the building of this country. The first recorded municipal bond was issued in the state of New York and connected the Hudson River to Lake Erie to Lake Champlain, which opened up trade routes for New York and really is responsible for solidifying New York as the financial hub of the United States. Today's guest is an expert in the municipal bond market. His name is Jonathan Mondillo. He is the head of the North American Fixed Income Division at Aberdeen Asset Management, which has offices in Miami, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, here in the United States. And in addition to his role overseeing the firm's fund manager's fixed income strategies, he's also responsible for the firm's municipal bond franchise and the Aberdeen family of municipal bond mutual funds. Jonathan joined the firm in 2018 where from Alpine Woods Capital Investors, where he was supervising two mutual funds that were bought out by Aberdeen at that time. Prior thereto, Jonathan worked for Fidelity Capital Markets. Jonathan graduated with a degree in finance from Bentley University in Massachusetts. So today is my pleasure to welcome live from New York City, John Mondillo with Aberdeen Asset Management. John, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Emerson, thanks for having me. Awesome. So first question I got to ask you, and I'm asking because there was a time as I kind of grew in the industry where if I thought if I ever was a PM, municipal bonds actually would be the place I would want to go. That was until I started getting acquainted and making friends with all these quant guys. But what draws you to the municipal bond as an opportunity? What would you do to that sector? 
Yeah, certainly. And to your point, it's not exactly the sexy asset class that you'd find in private equity or even public markets equity. And as I sat there and we'd spoken offline about this as well, in my finance 101 class, I can't say that public finance and municipal investing was where I'd seen my career taking off. But sort of early in my career in an internship that I had in college, I got a taste of public finance, municipal investing. And I love probably two things about it. One was the nature of the investments that we were making into nonprofit, in many instances, municipalities or revenue-backed non-for-profits. And then two, relative to the equity markets, was some finality to our investment, i.e. the maturity of the bond. So I certainly took to the bond markets relative to the equity markets, which at an infinite time horizon. So... See, that's really interesting because that would have never even occurred to me. But those are really good points. Yeah. I mean, a stock is a stock. You hold it till you you decide not to. But the bonds, at some point, there's a finite life and it forces you to have to make a decision. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny what makes people tick. So, no, that's cool. So, I guess I started in the intro that I mentioned just kind of treasury markets versus municipal markets. And if you wouldn't mind maybe just elaborating for people on the differences, because I think most everybody knows the treasury markets are the most liquid markets in the world. And I think that came as a surprise, especially back in, I think, 2008, 2009, when everything started to lock up. And I know the municipal market in particular (coughs) suffered. So, maybe I could just ask you to share your thoughts on that part of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, when you look at historical defaults of the municipal market, I think there's a tendency to always be compared to the treasury market just because historical defaults are extremely low. That being said, as you move down the credit spectrum within the municipal market, uh, we do tend to see defaults, especially when you look into the high yield or the non-rated portion of this marketplace. That's not to say that it's not an extremely safe asset class historically, especially relative to corporate markets, but certainly I think introduces a bit more credit risk relative to treasuries or the risk-free debt market that's out there. So to your point, there tends to be some illiquidity of which you are compensated, in our eyes, compensated for with additional yield relative to the treasury market, especially on an after-tax basis. And then to my final point on the after-tax basis, these are, in many instances, tax-exempt securities. So the interest that you're receiving on your municipal debt is tax-exempt to federal income taxes. Treasury markets, the coupon that you're receiving is taxable at the federal tax rate. So I think investors invest in municipal securities rather than treasury securities for a number of different reasons, anywhere from additional yield on an after-tax basis, and then maybe a little bit of credit exposure, again, where you can invest in single-A municipals, double-A municipals, and even triple-B municipalities, and really pick up additional yield relative to treasuries. Okay, so explain the liquidity part of it, because in other words, when we say there's a limited liquidity at times, what exactly in practical terms does that mean? Yeah, so I mean, you could just look at the buyer base for municipal bonds and over 50% of the marketplace is retail holders. They tend to be more buy and hold strategies, which in times that 
the market is going a bit haywire and you need liquidity, that certainly impacts your ability to sell the security. You've got to wait for another retail holder in many instances to want to buy that security from you for whatever reason. Relative to the treasury market, where you've got a global buyer base, both institutional, retail, as well as government buyers, as we've seen with large buyers coming out of the Far East in Japan, China, as well as European support for treasuries. Now, I will say that that also speaks to probably one of the benefits within municipals as they tend to be less volatile than the treasury market. And we've seen that certainly over the last several years as those international buyers of treasuries have maybe stepped away from the treasury market and you've seen increased volatility in rates within that marketplace. So more volatile, and more liquid on the treasury side, but certainly benefits to owning municipals, especially for buy and hold investors focused on coupon clipping. You bring up a good point, and it's kind of one that reoccurs with every investment. There's always trade-offs, and you have some geopolitical that's going to impact it. Like just last night, I think Japan's decided to stop shifting the way they're controlling their yields or something. And of course, everybody's wondering, well, okay, where are they getting this money that the bonds are buying? And speculation is they're going to dump treasuries. So today, you know, treasury bond prices are down, yields are up. Yeah, yields are up. So it's interesting. You get more liquidity, but you also get more variables. So let me ask you this. Could you walk people through the decision when you're looking at individual securities? I don't mean to bust in any proprietary stuff, but just in general, what are you looking at in comparing if you've got an apples to apples situation, if there is one, kind of walk through that and what the separators are. Does that make sense? If you've got two things that are say paying 4%, Okay, what surrounds that decision as to I'm going to place the money in this fund to portfolio to this versus that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I think there's distinct differences between one municipal security versus another municipal security. At a very high level, that distinction is made between two subsets of municipal bond, which is whether it's a general obligation bond, meaning a general obligation of the municipality, state, local municipality that is issuing that debt, or a revenue-backed bond, which really runs the gambit of non-for-profit issuers, what that revenue is that goes to pay back debt holders. So that's first and foremost. When we're talking about a municipal issuer and a general obligation bond, I think we probably start with both qualitative as well as quantitative factors, which seemingly would be endless. You could just continue to go down that rabbit hole on what makes one municipality or municipal issuer better than or more attractive to and lend to than another municipality. But at a very high level, qualitative factors have to do with what their governance structure looks like, how consistent they've been at passing budgets on time, how they've done in terms of budgetary performance historically, as well as different socioeconomic factors of the municipality and the surrounding area. What do wealth levels look like? What does unemployment rate look like? What percentage of revenue mix comes from sales tax? What percentage of revenue mix comes from income tax, property tax, and a whole host of other what we would categorize as being qualitative factors. When you shift to the quantitative metrics of a municipality, a lot of that has to do with 
budgetary. So what kind of budgetary surplus have they run historically relative to total budget or expenditures? And then on the liquidity side, what does their balance sheet metrics look like? What does their general fund, which is where most municipalities operate out of, their general fund balance look like relative to overall budget? I think the balance sheet metrics, certainly as you get into, and we're at that time right now, entering 2023, what we view as being at least a slowdown in growth, if not a recessionary environment at Aberdeen expecting to come in the second quarter. When you look at balance sheet metrics and general fund reserves headed into that, I think they become the utmost importance as opposed to more income statement analysis of what his budgets looked like over the last several years, because those tend to fade away as revenues diminish, as unemployment ticks up, and as the consumer slows down, you see those sales tax revenues drop off quite dramatically as well. So just a couple points probably to touch on when we're looking at a one credit versus another and, and what the benefits are and, and why we make those determinations. <laughs> so you're not just seeing a bond, oh, it's paying 4%, let's buy that. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, listen, I certainly think that there was probably a time when that was the investment (laughs) technique in municipal investing, probably well before you started your career. It was probably more so let's look at the rating, let's look at the yield and indiscriminately pick the higher number, right? And then you fast forward to different points in time, whether that's sort of the late 90s when we saw yields back up, certainly to your point, 2008, the great financial crisis, the tide went out and you saw which municipalities weren't wearing bathing suits, proverbial (laughs) speaking. But I think it just speaks to the importance of fundamental credit research and the benefits to it as well. Which is why I've dabbled in myself on times over the years in buying individual issues for clients. But everything you just said is exactly exactly why I are professionals because try and sift through that and even have the time to really dig in like you need to. It's a full-time job for sure. Let me ask you this because you brought up a point and a number of years ago, I was elected city treasurer in a small little town in Southern California and they did a bond issue. And I remember I was kind of involved from an ancillary consultative basis to the extent I could offer anything. But I remember what exactly what you said. It was a very sales tax driven city, a lot of auto dealerships, a lot of retail. That was their thing. But I remember there was the decision that was made not to purchase insurance on the bonds. And I think it had something to do with it wasn't going to be enough of a difference for some reason or another. The benefits didn't justify the cost. And so that's the question is, is where does insurance How significant is that as a consideration to you when you're looking at bonds? Or is it really mandated by the dictates of the portfolio you're investing for? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's dictated by the portfolio that we're managing. There are portfolios where we do use insurance. There are certain instances or certain issuers that we would rather own the insured debt that's outstanding. But that being said, I think when we get into certain credits or certain distressed or default scenarios, we look first and foremost to the issuer itself. To your point on from an issuer's perspective, I can imagine when you're in an extremely low interest rate environment, which up until this year, we were for the better part of 10 to 15 years, the benefits of insurance 
versus the cost probably didn't make sense in that low interest rate environment. That being said, I think for an issuer's standpoint with rates and where they backed up, I would imagine that the cost of insurance, especially for lower investment grade issuers relative to the cost savings, i.e. the lower yield that they're able to issue at, probably makes more sense today than it did in this particular instance that you bring up. But from our standpoint, again, dictated by the mandate that we're managing on behalf of, but ultimately comes down to the underlying issuer in every instance. We could point to an instance where we had great luck in buying insured debt with the territory of Puerto Rico, but also there's probably some retail and institutional holders of Puerto Rico debt that didn't understand under the bankruptcy, you could have even your insured debt called post the restructuring. So what that impact is, is you might buy a bond at a premium, let's say a 105, and six months later, if there's a debt restructuring, you think you own a 20-year structure, and I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, your debt all of a sudden is refinanced and as a result of that restructuring, and you're paid in cash. So you ultimately might have sustained a loss where you thought you owned insured debt, and it wasn't the instance. But again, in the weeds a bit, and really when you're talking about distressed or defaulted credits is is when that comes into the forefront, but benefits and detractors to both. So let me ask you this. That's okay. And again, I know enough to be dangerous, (laughs) but like Puerto Rico, because I'm the guy who's getting these emails from these companies. We don't invest in Puerto Rico. And of course, if you don't really dig in and know anything, okay, well, I don't want any funds in on Puerto Rico, but maybe can you speak to the truth is always in the middle and there's always opportunity in the rubble of the disaster. How do you navigate stuff like that? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's a perfectly fair question. I mean, there is relative value depending upon the strategy in every issuer, even defaulted issuers to a certain degree. That being said, at Aberdeen, we don't have mandates that are more opportunistic buyers or distressed buyers. That's not sort of what we do here. We are probably, we would characterize as more conservative investment managers. We see a burning building and we run from it as opposed to run into the burning building (laughs) and try to put out the fire. So I can't really speak to the strategies that we run. But that being said, there are distressed municipal buyers that bought Puerto Rico securities in default at 20 cents on the dollar and a number of years later got paid out at uh, 40 cents on the dollar. Mm. So to some, it's a good investment. I look at it more as uh, the rewards probably don't make up for the risks associated with that because in a municipal bankruptcy, as we find in many instances, up to the judge that is proceeding over that In most instances, a Chapter 9 bankruptcy with the case of Puerto Rico, it was a federal creation, what's called a Chapter 3 bankruptcy. But in both instances, you don't really know what prevailing judge is going to decide on that workout. So again, we tend not to invest in those distressed credits and work on uh, current income providers. No, that makes sense. You don't really want one person determining what's going to happen to the NAV <laughs> you know, overnight. <laughs> and that's what happens, right? That's what happens, unfortunately, yeah. in those instances. It's not as clean cut as a corporate bankruptcy, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, less, more variables. Once again, yeah. more variables. Back to 2008, 2009. Are there any, because obviously, I think we all learn. I did as a financial advisor. You'll learn a lot of lessons in those kind of extreme situations. Anything that really comes to mind having navigated managed portfolios through that period of time that really just sticks out that you're comfortable sharing? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the two things I'll point out, and probably the first speaks to the second, the first being something that you touched upon, which is professionally managed assets, especially from an investor standpoint. And I speak to a lot of investors such as yourself and some of your clients. It's difficult to understand all the different asset classes and the different nuances to those asset classes, and even the difference between different sectors within that asset classes, municipal, municipal issuers being one. So I think it speaks to the importance of professional management. And then the second, which is really a derivative of the first, is that within a pooled vehicle, as opposed to buying individual bonds, in this instance, individual municipal bonds, it allows your portfolio to really maintain a level of diversity and hyper diversity. So there's going to be instances where even professional bond managers have a default distressed security. It just comes with any risk asset, right? I think the expectation is that through diversification, your clients don't see the brunt of that. And I think that that was a big learning experience in 2008 and 2009 and probably speaks to the growth in professionally managed strategies within the municipal asset class. Prior to 2008 and 2009, there was a lot of different retail brokerage accounts that were buying individual municipal securities, some of which were Puerto Rico, Detroit. I'm sure some of the owners own Vallejo, California and the likes. And I think because of that time period, some people learned, I think, a hard lesson. And we've seen since then the growth of more professionally managed solutions, which makes sense. That's an interesting observation. And you're right. I'm just thinking about it. There was a time in my career where you would see portfolios just self-managed, where somebody had some kind of a rudimentary ladder strategy or something like that in the mix. But the truth is, it's not something that I recommend to people that are fit for municipals, but you just don't see it anymore. Even if I've got some prospect client that comes in that's referred to us from somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. It's just, it's well, really kind of archaic, it, I guess. It's something so foundational to what we do is completely understanding the investment that you are making or understanding that the person that is making that investment understands the investment and you understand the process. And we see this from time to time and certainly something vastly different from the asset class that I participate in on a day-to-day basis. But we see this with FTX and what's going on in the the crypto markets, obviously. There's a lot of people invested that didn't understand crypto, didn't understand FTX, and didn't understand the management team behind FTX. So all of those are really red flags, in in my opinion, to bad investment guidance. I'll share a story just real quick, getting back to my city treasurer thing. The short of it is, is I was put in a position where I could start to expand the investment pool because the state of California allowed certain things to be done, but the people that were the directors of finance at this city weren't comfortable doing it. But eventually I sort of edged my way in, started spreading this stuff out. And this was 2008. And I remember the broker that actually did the buying, I was just making recommendations and then this other guy would execute it, gave me a sheet. And there was a few choices. One was Lehman. And then there was another one. I think it was a uh, Prudential or something. And I, dumb luck. I wish I could say it was some skill. I just looked at the two. The Lehman bond was paying more than the other one. And for some reason, my brain is like, eh. And that turned out, I look like a hero. <laughs> but the truth is, is my lesson from that was exactly what you said. It's like, mm-hmm. do you really want to be 
taking a 50% risk. I mean, it's just that's as much as you can be right, you can equally be wrong. And I just, that was something, a story situation I'll never forget. So, well, in um, that instance, too, the yield differential was probably, I'm just throwing spitballing, probably 20 basis points, 25 yeah, points. Maybe. Exactly. And when you look at the risks of Lehman at the time, trading at 33 times earnings or whatever and, and leverage to the hill. And how would a guy not- like me even know that? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's good. Well, we're definitely making a case here for professional management. I guess the only other thing that kind of sticks out is I know that there's been, well, two things. Because the municipal market, I know there's this kind of a relationship to the treasuries. There's a spread relationship where, and I don't want to say that there's a point where it gets too cheap, but there is a point where, if I remember right how this works, the tax, the, the yields effectively <laughs> become equal, where the tax-free benefit depending upon your tax rate, becomes even greater. And isn't there some kind of a connection, correlation between these two where prices eventually have to maintain some kind of a, at least historical norms, there's some kind of relationship between the two? Am I right on that? Yeah, absolutely. So two areas where most municipal advisors, investors, certainly ourselves, look at for the treasury markets. The first is flows. And one of the areas you can look to historically when we either see strong inflows into municipal mutual funds, CTFs, and separately managed accounts, as well as, and probably more so, strong outflows of which we've seen over the last 12 and a half months is where treasury rates are going. So when we see treasury rates selling off, i.e. treasury rates moving up, of which they've done 200, 300 basis points, if not more, in the front end, This year, we tend to see outflows in municipal asset class. The second area of which you touched upon is really a relative value assessment of municipal bonds relative to taxable or treasuries. So you can compare the yield on a municipal security or a benchmark municipal security, really AAA municipal security, relative to treasuries. And you're absolutely right. Historically, with the exception of maybe the long end, anything inside of 20 years has historically traded in and around 75% of what a treasury yield is. If we look at yields today, and a lot of this has to do with the strength of the municipal market over the last month and a half, November was the strongest one-month returns in municipal bonds since 1986, just to give you some historical perspective. So rates have really come down dramatically over the last month and a half. And as we sit here today, relative to treasuries, we actually think that municipal bonds look a bit rich and potentially could see some softening over the next month to two months as they play a bit of catch up to the treasury market. Again, yields being a little bit lower than where we would expect to see them. That being said, and I think something that we probably spend more of our time looking at when we speak to investors is the yield of municipal security relative to a corporate security, especially Mm. right now as we're entering 2023 and a period of time where you're going to see earnings compression, you're going to see uptick in defaults on the corporate side, certainly. And our expectation of an economic slowdown, I think this is probably speaks to investors that invest in both corporate bonds, as well as municipal bonds, and maybe where they should be shifting their allocation, which we think is in tax exempt municipal debt. When we look at ratios of municipal debt versus corporate debt, 
much like on the relative to treasuries, there is the historical mean that we look for. And it's in and around 70% if we look over the last 20 years, investment grade to investment grade. Right now, we're sort of in that sweet spot, right in and around 70% investment grade munis versus investment grade corporate bonds. And when we compare the underlying credit quality today versus 20 years ago in corporates relative to munis, we actually think munis look about as attractive as they ever have, especially headed into an economic slowdown. So we look at ratios relative to treasuries, certainly, but probably more so relative to corporate bonds. I think it probably makes more sense. Interesting. I've never heard that. So another thing that just kind of popped into my brain is what about the political impact? I mean, it's always, well, these guys are going to get elected. They're going to be increasing taxes. I mean, does any of that really have, is that more like short-term noise versus long-term fundamentals? You know what I mean? Based on what's going on in Washington? Yeah, I think there's a certain sense to that, to your point, short-term noise, but focusing on long-term fundamentals. That's always been our sort of guiding, what guides us really as we invest is focusing on fundamental credit research, less so on what sort of macro drivers, which tends to be a bit of noise just 12 months after, 18 months, 24 months after Mm. different tax policy or different policies enacted either in Washington or at the state or the local level. Again, depending upon how impactful it is, it tends to all come out in the wash. That being Mm. said, when you look at some large policy decisions that have been made, they can be quite impactful. And that's the sort of, those are the ones that we tend to manage the portfolios to and tend to look out for. I think probably most recently would be the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which changed the cap on state and local deductions, as well as changed the tax brackets. So again, less so on sort of smaller changes and more local municipal changes that are made and more so on sort of large impactful of which we really didn't see on this last midterm elections. Yeah. So, and those don't, I mean, as you're putting it that way, that really doesn't happen that often anyway. I mean, you're talking tax reform act of 86, the last one, and maybe a few adjustments in between. So interesting. I want to go back to something you said in the beginning. I didn't forget about, and we can kind of maybe conclude with this. And I'm hoping I'm asking this question, right? And I'm hoping it's okay to ask it. So if it's not, we'll edit this part out. No, I open book. You can ask away. You mentioned, and I thought, and I really appreciate this as I've interviewed a lot of different people from all sorts of different financial thread connects everything in my mind, but there is sort of this element of a greater purpose. It's one thing to sit and look at these reports and do this credit, but you brought up a point about the work, the influence in the nonprofit arena. And I think that's just a nice, I like that that's an element that resonates that you would bring up as something that matters to what you're doing. I don't know if you can share anything that's like that, where you've felt sense of making a difference, if that's a way to put it. I don't know. I mean, we're all motivated different ways. I mean, I get calls from clients and it's really touching. They say, you know, we were going around the table. Somebody just called me a week ago and we're asked saying what we were thankful for. And clients said they were thankful for me because I just went on a big vacation at Disney World and didn't have to worry about what they spent on their grandkids. <laughs> and, and to be thought of like that, I guess you hang around long enough, you're going to make a few friends. But you know what I mean? I'm just wondering, is something that sort of like that, can you share too, or just something you feel like I'm glad we're putting our money here. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, you obviously see ESG investment making a lot of headlines recently for good and for bad. I think probably one of the things that I spoke to it as draw to investing in public finance and, and municipal issuers when I started my career still remains true to this day and, and probably 
lucky to be involved in this asset class because when we look at at the asset class through sort of an ESG lens, and this has always been the case in the asset classes, roughly 80% of the asset class is providing for some sort of social good, right? When we talk about a non-for-profit issuer, it is part and parcel with the objectives of that issuer is to provide some good for the taxpayer, provide some good for the customers of whatever that operator is trying to do. So where we make investments and where I'm most interested in, we're talking about sort of hospital systems throughout the country that providing a necessary service to the municipality around them. We can talk about higher education and It goes everywhere from sort of higher education to local schooling, charter schooling, as well as sort of senior living and certainly with an aging demographic and an aging population. Continuation of care is is first and foremost. A lot of Americans' minds with their knowing someone or having a family member that is getting to that age in their life. So I think this is an area of my day-to-day job that certainly hits home and could put a bit of a smile on my face. To your point, not only does it keep the lights on in my soul, but also I like to think that by lending to these different issuers, we're doing a bit of good at the same time. So I started the intro and you just explained, I love it when things come full circle, it's perfect, because you explained why, to me, you buy a government bond and you don't know where it's going probably not going to do something you wanted to anyway. What is the impact of this? And you just nailed it, that municipals, you know exactly what you're funding. And aside from all the other financial benefits, to me, that's a qualitative, as an investor, I think that's just a really important consideration. That is ESG. I like what you said. You want to be an ESG investor, you buy municipal bonds because you're not feeding some corporation that's got its tentacles and everything. And that's me speaking. This is my opinion. But as you said, you're doing something that you could see potentially in your very own community right down the street. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. You have your cake and you can eat it too. And I think that speaks to something that we also talked about offline is the growth of non-domestic buyers for municipal securities because it checks off a lot of boxes. The yields are attractive and never more so right now than certainly in the last 10 plus years. And then you are doing a bit of good with many of the issuers that issue in the space. And furthermore, it's not a general purpose bond that you would find in the corporate bond market. And then it's not just the US Treasury bond, to your point, that money's fungible and tends to go for multiple different purposes. In many instances in the municipal bond market, there's a clear and distinct use of proceeds. You know where your money is going. So all those reasons, I think, are enough to like the municipal mob market. No, this is great. Just a couple final things. I could certainly have this conversation with you all day, and I know you have other things to do, like manage your portfolios. And I guess I do too, for that matter. But I was just thinking, there was a time where I remember firms have different rules, but I once was licensed at a broker-dealer that allowed me to use municipal exposure in an IRA, which, of course, eliminates the tax-free benefit. But In my mind, it actually represented a separate asset class. Now, I'm not asking you to say whether that's right or wrong, but I think you've made the point in this conversation that it really is a separate asset class within the bond arena. I mean, is that sort of a fair characterization? Yeah. Listen, obviously, to your point, it's dictated by the different firms, whether or not that's even allowed. In many instances, it's not. I have oftentimes made the argument that 
you're putting together a diversified portfolio, whether it's in a tax-deferred or taxable portfolio, munis should be a part of that. You can look at long-term returns and probably more importantly, speaking to the diversification of the asset class, long-term correlations. And there's no reason why it doesn't offer some benefit, if not to protect or insulate investors when you do see sort of a volatile event or large market sell-off. So yeah, and that's sort of separate aside from the different issuers that offer significant diversification too. So I think there's certainly benefits and reason for munis to be in those types of strategies. Yeah, interesting. Last thought, and I'll let you go, is any particular economic figure or philosophy that's sort of impacted you in your life that just comes to mind, first thought, a book maybe, I don't know, anything that really just you feel like that's kind of like a foundational part of who you are as a money manager? Oh, man. Economic philosophy. Uh, That's the toughest question you've asked me. Save the best for last. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to go through all of my economics books. It's probably a more recent one, relatively speaking. Certainly didn't read this when I was in college, but I always enjoyed Freakonomics more so (laughs) to one of the points that I made where there's just, there are so many different factors that impact every facet of your life. And I think it sort of speaks to my marketplace. And that was one that always stood out to me. But other than that, I can't really think of one particular book that sort of led me on this career path. No, no, that's good. I'm always interested because things (laughs) you read stuff and it resonates for different reasons. But listen, Jonathan, I appreciate the time. It's great talking to you. I'm glad I got connected with your firm. And just thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance today. Emerson, thanks for the time. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.